Since I was 26 years of age, I've been involved in full-time ministry almost all of that time, now until 64 years of age. And I very seldom have ever ventured from this basic uh, pattern. When I start a book of the Bible, I work through that book of the Bible from beginning to end without any parentheses with the exception of Christmas season and Easter, which I think have particular opportunities for a, for a pastor and a preacher to focus our attention on the birth and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, but I'm, I'm taking a, a hiatus from the Gospel of Luke until January because the Lord has been burdening me for, for many months now about a number of things. Some of these things have been a growing burden in my, in my heart. You've heard me say some of them to you before. Uh, to our ministerial staff, I, I'm sure I sound like a, a Johnny One Note on this. And it's that attendance is not assimilation. That it's possible for people to regularly attend and not be assimilated. And I have a, an ever-growing passion that those who attend become more and more assimilated into our congregation. We need them and they need us. And so often BFG leaders, ministerial staff, uh, deacons, we're satisfied with attendance without assimilation. But if you're a leader in this church, what I'm saying is we can't be satisfied with that. And we can't be satisfied with it if we're members either. It takes, it takes intentionality. It takes an entire congregation to buy into the belief that attendance is not assimilation. Nothing, nothing good happens without intentionality, but you can't program and legislate a congregation buying into the vision that attendance is not assimilation. There's no programming, there's no, there, there's no slick marketing technique for that, just people buying into that. I've also had this, this growing sense that, that, those, that those on the fringes were created for more than living on the fringes. You've been born again for more than just living on the fringes of a church. You've been recreated. You've been born again by the Spirit of God to dive in and become fully acclimated, fully assimilated into the local church. And the reason is not first and foremost for yourself, but first and foremost for the glory of God. The reason we stay on the fringes is first and foremost, we make it about us, but when we make it first and foremost about the glory of God, it's like I can't stay on the diving board and live my spiritual life on the diving board looking, looking at the pool from a distance. I've got, to, I've got to dive in. Because church growth is not the end game, church health. Church health triumphs over church growth every time. God is more concerned about faithfulness than success. We equate success with church growth. God equates success with faithfulness. 
And faithfulness is helping shepherd people from the fringes into the body. It's helping people see that attendance isn't assimilation. And then all of us walking arm in arm to the glory of God, taking more and more terrain for the kingdom of God from the kingdom of darkness. So all of that leads me up to why I'm beginning a, a sermon series that I've entitled Blessed Assurance. I think, it, I think it's easy for people to get saved and not be properly discipled into the church. And then it's easy for a church not to be intentional about discipling those who have been saved for quite some time. Things don't happen without intentionality. To a great degree, that's what our Wednesday nights are. Our Wednesday nights are our attempt to faithfully disciple children, to faithfully disciple youth, and to faithfully disciple adults. We do that on Sunday mornings through preaching. We do it on Sunday mornings through Bible fellowship group. But doing it on Wednesday nights enables us to cross generational lines and allow iron to sharpen iron, men with men, women with, uh, women, with women, and to read substantive books, talk about substantive issues, and then for cross-fertilization to take place between ages and for us to be able to grow, to grow spiritually. I have, I have loved the group that I've been a part of this, uh, this semester. As you would expect, I'm the oldest person in that group. But we've got a, a brother in the 50s, one, in the, one about 50, 49, 50. We've got several guys in their mid-20s to early 30s. It's a, it's a phenomenally helpful time for me. And so what I'm saying to you is I have become deeply burdened about discipleship. Discipling our children we do, a, we do a good job. I want us to always do better. We're discipling our youth. We're doing a good job. I want us to do better. Uh, discipling our adults. We're doing a good job. I want us to do even better because Jesus called people to be disciples. You would have loved the first service. In the first service, we had about 90 youth over in this section. Today, they're having their first Youth United service. And well, it's a vague fog to me to see all of them over there because of my vision. I was able to walk down and to see the people, some of the people that are leading them before the service. And we've got, a, we've got an army of godly men and women that are working with our young people. And I've got three grandchildren that are teenagers in that youth group. And I could not be any happier with the people that I see discipling them along with their mom and dad discipling them at home. So I want to talk about some things that we should have been taught. Maybe we were taught. I doubt we were taught when we were first saved. I want to talk to you this morning about assurance of salvation. Bailey read 1 John 5, 11 to 13. These were the first three verses that I memorized out of the Bible. Because the man that led me to faith in Christ intentionally discipled me, and the first thing he discipled me in was the concept of assurance of salvation. Because it's possible to think you're a Christian and yet not be a Christian. It's possible to think you're not a Christian, but you are a Christian. It's God's perfect 
purpose or plan or desire for us to know, to be a Christian and know we're a Christian, to have assurance of salvation. It's very possible for a person to think they're saved. They can go back maybe to a day or a time or an hour, but they have no love for Jesus, no love for the church, no love for the things of God. They're good people, moral people, upstanding people. They're casually connected to the local church. They're not intricately connected to the local church. And when I talk with people like that, they'll say, well, I'm not very involved in church, but I know that I'm saved because I was baptized. I was saved at the age of seven. I said, how can you be indwelt by the Spirit of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and not care about the things of God? How is that possible? Explain to me how you know God, but God's not doing anything in you for the past 5, 10, 12, 15 years. They said casually coming and going to church occasionally. And then we've got people who have been genuinely born again by the Spirit of God, but Satan wants to render them ineffective because he wants them to think they don't know God, because they don't feel like they know God. He wants them to think that your feelings are an accurate reflection of reality. You don't feel saved, you must not be saved. And yet you look at that brother and sister and you, and you wonder, how can you think you're not saved? Now, my policy is never to tell a person they are saved if they don't believe they're saved. But my, but my policy also is to take them to the little book of 1 John, which helps Christians who are struggling with assurance of salvation to come to an understanding, not how they feel, but what truth says about their salvation. The little book of 1 John is a book about assurance of salvation. We can never be as effective as we ought to be for the kingdom if we're continually struggling with our salvation. But if you were Satan, what would you want to do to believers but to cause those who are headed to heaven to think they're headed to hell? Because it just it renders them ineffective and it, it causes them to be in, in spiritual turmoil all the time. But God in his good providence has given us a little book, the book of 1 John, that is intended to be a, a, an asset to assist us by the Spirit of God in helping us have some definitive passages that can clarify for us whether we know Jesus or not. In fact, I want you to turn with me to 1 John because John gives us three tests of life. Uh, three tests that we can look at, we can read, and then we can compare what it says to our life. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to give assurance to the people of God. One verse is 1 John chapter 2, verses 3, 4, and 5. Listen along as I read. By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever follows his word in him, the love of God has, been, has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says that he remains in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Notice the repetition of the word no. It communicates the idea of assurance. Uh, 
We know we love Jesus by obeying Jesus. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, by this people will know we love Jesus if we walk according to his word. And so, do we seek to live in obedience to Jesus? None of us live perfectly, all of us fall short, but do we seek to grow in intentionality and in perseverance Follow, to follow Jesus more and more. It may be slow going. Some days may be better than other days. Some days we're confessing a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, failures and sins to the Lord. But are we serious about walking in holiness before Jesus? A second verse is 1 John chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. If the first test is called the, the moral test, I call this the ecclesiological test. Do we love the church? The one who loves his brother and sister remains in the light. And there is nothing in him to cause stumbling. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I call this the ecclesiological test. Ecclesiology is the study of the doctrine of the church. Do you love the church? Do you have a love for the church? A lot of people will say, I love Jesus, but I'm not very faithful to church. You can't love Jesus and not be faithful to church. You can't love Jesus and not be committed to a, to a local assembly of believers because the church are the brothers and sisters of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the people of God. The church is where God is conforming people into the image of his son through the preaching of his word and the ministry of the saints. So John says your attitude and disposition toward the church is a reflection of your spirituality or lack thereof. So I call that the ecclesiological test. Uh, the last one is called the Christological test. Christology is the study of the person and work of Jesus. And John 2.23 says, 1 John, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Now this gets to the very heart of the passage that Bailey read to us just a few minutes ago. A person must believe that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says that he is to be saved. You can't be saved and not believe what the Bible says about the person and work of Jesus. That's what sets evangelical Christianity apart from Mormonism. That sets it apart from Jehovah Witness. That sets it apart from Hinduism. It sets it apart from Buddhism. It sets it apart from Islam. It sets it apart from every other religion in the world because we believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ to be true. And that's the Christological test. The interesting thing is, if you read through 1 John, these tests come up over and over and over again. Each of them you can find in at least three different passages. Three times we have the moral test. Three times we have the Christological test. Three times we have the ecclesiological test. So whenever you are struggling with your salvation or you're talking to someone that is struggling with their salvation, one thing you can do rather than convincing somebody they're saved if they're uncertain of their salvation is to say, 
Let's go to the little book of 1 John. Let's just read it together. And so many Christian people who have struggled with their salvation have gained assurance, not because they found themselves to be perfect, but because they found God's Word to be true. They are concerned about living for Jesus. They do love the church. They do believe that Jesus is who the Bible says that He is. But the passage that, that Bailey read to us, as I mentioned a moment ago, were the very first verses that I memorized as a brand new Christian at about 19 years of age. Because the wise brother that led me to faith in Christ and who was disciple, discipling me knew that if I were like almost every Christian, there would be times in my life I would struggle with assurance of my salvation. Let me read the verses again. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has the life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants us not only to be saved, but to be absolutely secure in our salvation. If you have children, memorize these three verses with them. The younger they are, the longer it may take. The older they are, the shorter the process may be. If your parents, if you're a child and your parents don't do it with you, learn it yourself. Memorize it yourself. Write it on a little card. Say it every day when you get up, every day at lunch, every day when you go to bed. And allow those words to be like a branding iron on your soul that you may know that you have eternal life. I want you to notice several things about this passage, these three verses. The first one is this. Notice the binary nature of things. You either have the Son or you don't have the Son. You either have life or you don't have life. The Bible knows of no other category. A person is either saved or lost. They're headed to heaven or to hell. They are indwelt by the Spirit of God or the Spirit of God doesn't know them. They either are a child of God or they're not a child of God. Those are the only two categories the Bible knows. You either have the Son or you do not. You either have the life or you do not. There is no other category. We live in a day and time where such clarity is, well, it's seldom expressed. There's a lot of muddled thinking in our culture. Uh, we like to have a lot of parentheses or a lot of avenues. We, we, like, a, we like a smorgasbord of religious, of religious options to say definitively, authoritatively on the Word of God, Either you are saved or lost, you believe in Jesus or you don't. He is master and Lord or he is not. That's not very popular in a pluralistic society. We want a lot of options. We want a lot of ways to God. It's seen as narrow-minded, fundamentalistic. But what we say is, is evangelical Christianity. It is a crystallization of what the Bible says. You can't know God if you do not know Christ. There is no way that a person can be right with God apart from the person 
and work of Jesus Christ. So why is it that life is tied up in the Son? That that you don't have life, genuine life, spiritual life, authentic life, if you don't have the Son? Because the Son is the embodiment of life, real life, genuine life. Listen to what John chapter 1 verse 4, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote about Jesus. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of mankind. Listen to what Jesus said about himself in John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry, and the one who believes in me will never thirst. Notice he says the one who comes to me is the same one who believes in me. To to go to Jesus is to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to go to Jesus. And he satisfies our deepest passions and longings and desires. Listen to what Jesus said in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they could have life and have it abundantly. You know, all we have to do is to look around us, and sometimes not too very far from us, to affirm the fact that the thief has come only to steal and kill and destroy. The opposite of abundant life is a a life that's experiencing destruction. But Jesus says he came that he would give us life. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you know the word believe is used in some verbal form 98 times in John's gospel? Read through John's gospel sometimes in family devotion just a little bit at a time and, and, and with your kids, give them their Bible, give them a pencil or a pen and say, every time we find the word believe, let's circle the word because John uses it 98 times. Notice he says, believes in me, believes in me. Then Jesus says to the woman that he's speaking to, Martha, one of his closest friends, Do you believe this? That's the question. Jesus makes these broad pronouncements that are absolutely, definitively true. And then he says to her, this woman that's a personal friend of his, do you believe this? And if we had time, we could turn to John 11, and she absolutely confesses that she believes it to be true. Just a few hours before Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was in the upper room with his disciples. You're well familiar with that story. And this is what Jesus said about himself to his disciples. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
He who has the Son has the life. Why? Because the life, because the Son embodies life. I want you to notice a second thought from those three verses. That thought is this, eternal life is not a prize to be won, nor a reward to be earned, but an undeserved gift to be received. Jesus said, or John said about Jesus, as many as received him, and then he goes on to say, that is to believe in his name. To receive him is to believe in his name. To believe in his name is to receive him, is to accept him. It's to accept who he is, is to believe who he is. And he gives eternal life. It's not a prize to be won. It's not a reward to be earned. It's an undeserved gift to be received. And when we believe that, it causes us to be much more patient with people that don't know Jesus. It causes us to be more compassionate and kind and understanding because we didn't earn salvation. God didn't look down and say, man, I tell you what, Bill Cook would be unbelievable. I need him on my team. I don't know if I can put this whole thing together without him. Now, the apostle Paul said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The apostle Paul quoted from Psalm The Psalms, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seek for God. Salvation is an undeserved gift to be received. So we didn't earn it by hard work. We didn't gain it by reward. And so we should be much more long-suffering with wayward parents, unregenerate siblings, non-Christian co-workers, for they are in spiritual darkness. Paul put it this way in the book of Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The third thing that I want you to notice this morning is that eternal life is a present possession. Eternal life isn't something that we're waiting for. Eternal life is something that we currently have. We receive eternal life when we receive Jesus. And eternal life isn't just living forever. That is, the word eternal is is an interesting word. It's used 16 times in, in John's gospel, eternal life, the word eternal 16 times. And literally, it means pertaining to the ages. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, it means the life of the age to come has invaded our world, and we are experiencing a part of it right now. The kingdom of God was inaugurated with the coming of the king. We have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. But we still have death and sickness and heartache and pain and sin, although we're a part of the kingdom of God and dwelt by the Son of God. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated with the coming of the King. The kingdom of God will be consummated with the return of the King. Then there will be no heartache, sickness, pain, sin, and death. 
So to say that we have eternal life is more than just we're waiting for heaven. A part of heaven has invaded life now. To experience eternal life is to know God. John 17, 3, in Jesus' prayer, he said, and this is eternal life, that you know God and the only Son whom he has sent. Eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ. And so there's still heartache, sickness, pain, and death, but I tell you what, life with Jesus is so much easier and better and glorious than life without Jesus. I want to give you a final thought this morning, and and that is our salvation is secure. A lot of people live with a lot of insecurity because they they think, I've I've earned my salvation, I could lose my salvation. Or salvation is a gift from God, but I can can cast that gift aside. I, I am saved by grace, but I'm kept by works. That's absolutely false. It's untrue. It goes categorically against what the Bible teaches. Our salvation is secure, not because of our hard work, but God's protective grip. Late November, early December of A.D. 29, Jesus stood in the temple precinct celebrating the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. And listen to what Jesus said. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Our salvation is secure not because we work hard at keeping ourselves saved. Our salvation is secure because he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Notice the twofold grip around the the believer. Notice what he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. That's Jesus. We are in the hand of Jesus. And then he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. The big hand of Jesus has its fingers wrapped around us, and around the hand of Jesus, metaphorically speaking, is the hand of God the Father, the twofold grip of the Father and the Son. There's absolutely no one nor anything that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is secure. We are justified by faith. That means we are forgiven of all of our sins. We are credited with righteousness. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. He who began that good work will complete that good work. Now, it means at times, because He loves us, He may have to discipline us because all of us step out of line sometimes. And just like just like parents must consistently discipline their children, otherwise their children will grow up with unbelievable insecurity. You would think, you would think that by not disciplining your children, they would love you more. The reality is consistent, faithful, parental discipline 
causes them to be secure and they feel more loved when it's done appropriately. And so God disciplines us. When, when our, our kids were growing up, we had to discipline them. Regularly before we disciplined them, I would say something like this. I want you to know that I'm doing this because I love you. Now they're thinking, I bet that. <laughs> that's not why you're doing it. If you, if you love me, you wouldn't do this. I would say, I'm doing this because I love you and I, and I want you to learn that, that God won't let you get away with sin. If I let you get away with this, then, God, then you're going to grow up thinking, God's going to let me get away with my sin, but God is a better parent than I am. I need to be more like God. God, needs to be, God is not going to be like me. And so in disciplining you, I'm helping you to understand one day when you know Jesus, Jesus will discipline you when you sin against, uh, against him. Then I would discipline them, and they would, I would sit them in my lap. I would wrap my arms around them. I would kiss them. I would pray for them. I would, uh, I would uh, sometimes almost cry with them. And then I would assure them, I love you, and it's now behind us, and, and we're past this. Well, notice what he says. He says, we must... My sheep, they listen and they follow. My sheep listen and they follow. I don't always listen and follow. So when I'm not listening and following, then God will discipline me and God does discipline me. God disciplines me every week. The quicker I respond, the easier it is to get beyond it. The slower I am to respond, the more firm his discipline becomes. But notice he says, I give, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. The opposite of perishing is eternal life. Now, he doesn't tell us what perishing is, and that makes it a little bit more forebodable, a little bit more frightening. What does he mean when he says perish? There are people who will perish, but we're not those people. We're not those people because we believe what the Bible says about the Son is true, and the Son has given us eternal life. You know, the, the idea of assurance of salvation as a possibility is foreign to some branches of evangelical Christianity because they believe you can lose your salvation. The Bible doesn't teach that. God wants us to be saved. God wants us to know that we are saved so that we can live with that, with that sense of assurance. So we think about all that I've talked about this morning. Let me wrap it up this way. If you're hanging out on the fringes, you're outside the will of God, I'm encouraging you to dive in. If you're floating out on the edges like a three-point shooter waiting for the ball, that's fine in basketball. It's not very healthy for your spiritual life, and it's a bad witness to your family, co-workers who may not know Jesus. It's a big leap. It's a big step. But sometimes those are the steps 
that make all the difference in the world. Secondly, if you're struggling with your salvation, read through 1 John. It may very well be that this is nothing more than the attack of the enemy trying to cause you confusion, trying to, trying to inhib, in, uh, hinder your spiritual growth. And then allow the, allow the test to take you where the, the test goes, either to assurance or maybe for the need for more serious conversations with a, with a pastor or one of, our, with one of our staff members. So do this, 1 John 5, 11 to 13. Not my job to test you next week on it. Memorize it for yourself. Memorize it for your family. You'll be glad that you did. Your kids will one day feel blessed that you did. I'm going to ask if you'll stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we get ready to sing our final song this morning, we thank you that these, uh, these verses in 1 John that Bailey read and that I read, they're, they're short, but they're packed with such significant truth. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would take your word, these verses, and use them in our lives for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.